This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to another episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. This week, I have got not one, not two, but three interviews. Of course, uh, co-host Alan Niven is still locked away in an Arizona studio doing what he does. And so until then, we have got joining us on the phone, co-host Jim Peterick. Good day, Jim. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Yes, and, and this one's interesting because we, we're going to lead off the show with Mick Box of Uriah Heep. The band is currently on tour in the States with uh, Judas Priest. The tour lasts all the way to the end of June, almost July. And then, well, you're next. You're guest number two. And here, here's what the thing is. Fans are going to think, well, we recorded this all on the same day. No, we, are, we recorded your interview last week and we're doing this now. And so uh, we're going to have a chance to, uh, in a sense, to to grade the interviewer or have a, a look at how that went. But, uh, you know, there you go. And, uh, you know, normally, folks, like I said, we have two interviews. The show goes an hour, but we have part two of the Jim Valance interview. We had Jim on about two months ago, I would say. And then Alan Niven and I got Jim back on the phone and we did a part two because Alan heard the interview and said, oh, man, I got to talk to Jim, too. And, uh, of course, uh, we, we made that possible. And, and, you know, Alan wrote a lot of the songs with uh, Great White and Guns N' Roses, and he wanted to get sort of the songwriters thing going on. But, uh, Jim, let us quickly talk about Uriah Heep. And, you know, one thing I, I've noticed about Uriah Heep, or I think, to have, I think I've noticed about Uriah Heep, is that they are revered in... Europe revered in the UK and they're just one of those bands that have had a great sort of European career and yet when they come to the states they they have a career and yes they do well but it's not well you know do do you agree with that perception that they are a a real popular European band or did I miss something along the way mm-hmm. <laughs> Well I'm a, certainly a fan and I I live in Chicago uh and in fact, I just looking at their schedule and I'm hoping to make the uh, Rosemont theater show May, May 25th. Uh, if I'm in town and I think I am, that's how big of a fan uh, I am. I would love to, to hear them in that wonderful theater, Rosemont theater, but yeah, I'm sure they're bigger uh, in, in Europe, but you team them together with Judas priest and Holy, you know, Holy crap. Yeah. It's going to be incredible. Oh, it's going to be great. And, and you know what? I happen to know somebody on the uh, in the band and on the tour that if if you need me to get you in I can I can certainly make that happen but uh here's another interesting point because you don't just know and respect Uriah Heep but the band actually in 1998 on their album Sonic Origami covered Survivor covered the song Across the Miles and so the first question is are you aware did you hear that song H- have you ever come across it Oh my god yes uh, in fact, my recollection is that uh, I someone sent it to me, maybe my publisher, and they go, wait till you hear this, N- none other than Uriah Heap covered Across the Miles, and I couldn't have been more thrilled. And then I got a call uh, from Bernie Shaw, the lead singer, and he was just telling me how moved he was that when he was singing that song, he was thinking about home, he was thinking about missing his family, and he was literally, he could barely get through the song without tearing up. And you can actually hear that in his very emotional uh, delivery. So I'm, I'm a big fan of Mariah, uh, Mariah, you know, Mariah. 
You're we right. love Mariah. Yeah, and uh, yeah, good no, old, but and, yeah. no, and it's a great version, and uh, I'm, I love that song. It's one of the best, uh, one of the best songs that Frankie and I ever wrote, and uh, to have Uriah he honor that song was was really a big deal. Yeah, I can imagine. And and listen, uh, Bernie is a Canadian, and especially at that time, they were doing a lot of European touring, and so I can understand that that emotion was actually real because he was flying out. I guess from I think it's Vancouver, but he was flying out over you know over to to London, and 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 so yeah, I guess that was real. That was real missing emotion. But let me ask you this: when when you're a songwriter and you prepare something for your band. And you finagle it and you fix it and the producer says, hey, you should try this. And you get it to what you hope is the perfect version. What's it like to hear somebody else come out there and do Across the Miles or Eye of the Tiger or any of the other stuff and go, hey, wait, do you ever get those moments of, hey, we didn't think of that. We should have thought of that. Uh, uh, you know, it happens all the time. Uh, it just depends on the quality of the version. It can be a real bummer. <laughs> Or it could be a, the greatest thing where you go, oh, my God. You know, a group called Marvelous 3 just covered Eye of the Tiger. Uh, and it's phenomenal. And, you know, they totally, you know, put it on its head. And uh, it's it, it's great. Uh, and, of course, Uriah Heap was another example of, oh, my God. But there's some versions that I never want to hear again. And I won't mention those names. <laughs> There's a few of them you sort of cringe, but all right, let's let us remind the folks to uh, well go check out the band uh, Uriah Heep and that album Sonic Origami. Of course, their new album is called Living the Dream. It came out in September 2018, and let me tell you, folks, if you haven't heard that, this band, uh, 25 albums in, have not let go of the pedal to the metal. They they have delivered a hard rock. I'm not I, I'm not going to call it metal, but I'm going to call it a super hard rock album that you will love and makes total sense why they're opening for Judas Priest. Uh, and here he is, without further ado, the one, the only, guitarist extraordinaire, Mick Box. We are speaking with Uriah Heep's Mick Box. Of course, the band is on tour with Judas Priest all through North America, going almost till, the, almost till July, actually. So it's, it's actually a very long one. I'll be seeing two shows in Albany in mid-May. And of course, uh, living the dream is the latest album. Hey, living the dream, indeed, mate. Yeah, now yeah. It's, it's, it's wonderful, you know, because the the actual tour is going to last for about two months, right across um, America and Canada. And it's you know, it's it's, it's hundred years of of, of of British rock and metal. You know, it's um, all on one stage, one night. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, we're, it's going down an absolute storm. Uh, I was going to mention the the hundred years of metal, but but let's talk about this package because Judas Priest has gone out with Deep Purple, and now you guys. And in in the UK, this would be sort of a typical package. But in North America, we're used to either, and I, and I mean this respectfully, but nobody's opening up, you know, some local band, or we're used to something more sort of hair metal-ish. Uh, talk to me about bringing this to North American audiences specifically, because it, it is sort of this great Brit, I don't want to call it Brit pop, but great British... <laughs> A combination, just great stuff. Yeah, I think it's. Um, I think Jesus Priest were looking for a band to to go out with them, and and we just fit the bill, you know, one hundred percent on on every level. So, uh, and, and we, you know, there's a bit of history between the two bands because we toured together uh, back in the eighties when we were both having a heyday. So, um, you know, it's it's just revisiting that a little bit. So, um, um, 
But yeah, everything, everything's absolutely great. And I, th- I think it's for a great evening's music. Um, everyone can rock out and have, have, have a great time and, and escape from their daily lives from the amount of time that both bands are on stage. Yeah, so just quickly talk to me about that. Uh, I know the tour is, is underway, but are, what kind of set are you doing? Is it a, is it a co-headline bill where everybody sort of gets 75 minutes, or are you a traditional opener? No, we're a traditional opener. Yeah, we're just doing an hour, but we've changed our set to be uh, more of a heavy rock metal um, set, to, to, to be honest, you know, rather than go up there and doing any of the ballads, because um, we realize that the Jewish priest audience are quite... Um, young and they love all their their metal, so we were kind of we kind of geared it to, to all, all the energy towards that really in, in our song choices, which is great. So let me talk about some of the song choices. Uh, one of the latest singles <clears throat> is "Grazed by Heaven," which is a spectacular song. I mean, it just it opens up the album uh, wonderfully. So, talk to me about making new music and still having that urge to be aggressive and still have a nice hard rock edge. You know, you're not getting into the the later years doing you know, jazz explorations. Talk, talk to me about making a new album and, and putting something together that has a lot of meat, if you want, to it. Yeah, we're not quite in the armchair yet. Right. <laughs> no, 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 none of that in slippers, none of that stuff, mate, for your eye heap, no. Now, to be honest, you know, we've still got the same passion for what we do that we've always had. And I think it's that passion and energy that drives you on. And um, so, you know, we could never... Um, do anything but, but bring to the table a typical Uriah album. I think Living the Dream uh, exactly says that. You know, it actually encompasses everything the band's been known for musically, and it's all in one album, which is great. It really is. Um, I want to talk to you about some of the some of the stuff in the past here, real quick. And I'll start off with uh, drummer Lee Kerslake. He yes, of course, yes, he, he of course has announced, <clears throat> or it's been been made aware that he is terminally ill, and it's just not a good situation. Just quickly talk to me about what he brought to the band first, and then we'll get to the personal stuff. But, you know, he was with you for so many albums. What did he bring in terms of chops, in terms of personality, in terms of expertise? Uh, just just let's talk Lee. Okay, well, I think when we got the combination of uh, um, a rhythm section being Lee Kerslake and Gary Thane, we just had the powerhouse combination um in, in the engine room of the band that we wanted, you know, um, and we searched for forever. But once they settled in, um, it was just amazing. I mean, I believe it's just an incredible drummer. He's a very natural drummer. He's not a guy that had to sit down and uh, um, and go through all the um, the scoring side of things, you know. It just came so natural to him. And he, um, he had a very simplistic, powerful, very powerful sound, you know, that drove the band wonderfully. And he also had the, the, the chops to... to to be really, you know, um, calm it down a bit, you know, and play the right thing at the right time and stuff, you know. So he kind of had it all, really, to be honest, you know. Very much in the John Bonham mode um, of, that, of that day, if you like. Oh, very much so. I mean, what people do with both double bass drums now, he used to do with one. He was yeah. that fast, you know. It was amazing. And, and probably with some of the older gear, without all the helps of the, the new modern-day triggers and stuff. I mean, he was just amazing. Um have you had a chance to speak to him since since the news came out that that his health was sort of, well, not sort of. Oh, is... my mate, constantly, constantly, I'm constantly in touch. You know, we go out to dinner and everything. Yeah, um, you know, we were the best friends. We're sort of, um, I, I guess, we you could call us brothers to, to a degree. You know, brothers with different mothers. <laughs> um, we. We, we, we've always been in touch with each other. Even when he went off with Ozzy and, and, and came back to Heat and stuff, you know, we've always been uh, mates all the way through. 
Um, so yes, I, I ring him up all the time, and um, Sierra's getting on. And um, sometimes when he's having his treatment, I send him loads of jokes on text, and he says, "I'm the only one in the treatment room laughing." Um, and stuff like that, you know. So you know, I, I'm, I'm there with him all the time, much as I can be. Um, just recently, we played a show in London, and I managed to get him up on stage to do Lady in Blank with us, and uh, so that was really cool, you know. So yeah, we're in, we're in contact all the time, you know. And any support I can give, I'm there. Yeah, and and I'll, I'll move on from Lee in a second, but I'll ask you this: You just mentioned Ozzy <clears throat> when when he left to go do Ozzy. What was that sort of? Hey, good for you. You've got a sort of a, a more high-profile gig, for the, for the lack of a better word. Or were you like, hey, where are you going? We're a band. What, what do you like? Talk to me about that decision. How you sort of took it? Yeah, well, um, you know, the thing with Lee is he couldn't get on with the management, and you know, and the management would only only um, listened to one person in the band, and then and, and Lee felt that very very frustration on every, on an artistic level, on a writing level, on a playing level. Uh, on every level, to be honest, and it just got to a boiling point one day where he walked in the studio and he just he, he said, "That's it, I quit," and he left in that moment, you know. And I had no idea what he was going to do. Um, and then, of course, the next thing I hear is is he involved with the the, uh, the Aussie thing, and uh, and I went down to see them at rehearsals, um, and I understood it straight away because we were Andy's playing and, and called Bob Blazley on the bass. It was it was a uh, it was a match made in heaven, really. And um, so I could see where he was going with it. And I knew it, it was going to be very, very successful just just, just from the, um, you know, uh, the, the first 30 minutes of what I heard them doing, you know. And so it was wonderful, yeah. So, you know, be, being a mate, you, you never get jealous of mates and wonder why. You just go, well done, mate. You, you, you're falling on your feet. Now take it all away, you know. But unfortunately, that didn't happen, did it? No. You know, because um, when they got to the point of um, going to America for their first, first big American run after recording two albums... Um, Sharon decided to take an all-American band, and um, it was really funny because I was ringing up Leeds, wishing best of luck in America. <clears throat> and then he told me, "Well, I'm not going." Sharon's made this decision. I said, "Oh my goodness!" I said, "Well, look, I've just um, wound down the, the lineup that I had with 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 uh, an album we had called Conquest." I said, I've just, I, "And I'm looking for people now." and um, how about coming back? He said, well, is, is, that, is that guy Jerry Bronze still involved, which is our old manager? I said, no, I'll be managing it. He said, I'll be there in a heartbeat. <laughs> so um, that, that was good. And then I said, well, what's Bob doing then? He said, well, he's in the same position as me. So I said, well, give, give me Bob's number, give him a call. And, and he came over. And, and suddenly I'd, I'd, I'd virtually pieced together an, another um, a version of the band, which actually ended up recording um, an album called Abominog that went top 40 in America. And we went out and we toured with Def Leppard, who were the biggest things in sliced bread over in America at the time. So um, it was all, all guns firing again, you know, and, and we, had, we, you know, we were back together again, which was marvellous. It was. And by the way, thank you for pronouncing the album, because I was going to ask you, how do you pronounce that? Because I, I keep staring at it going, <laughs> Abominog, Abomini, Ab-. But yeah, so then you ended up with with sort of a priest, uh, not priest, uh, Aussie's uh, rhythm, not rhythm section, uh, the the bass and the drums, and so that was great. Um, just real quick here, because I'm well, in. Well, my... to be honest, Aussie's, you know, I got a lot to thank before because um, little did I know when he was down in the studios with us, we were all having a drunk, you know, having a few drinks and going a bit mad after sessions, um, that he was poaching Lee and Bob. <laughs> I had no idea. And um, also, of course, he, he poked stuff for me, John Sinclair, who was in that lineup with Abominog. And, and um, John went on to be his keyboard player for many, 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 many That's years. That's right. Albeit behind a curtain, I believe. But Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well. So, yeah, so Ozzy's got a lot to thank me for. <laughs> 
Yeah, and yeah, but you got him back for Abominog. I'm, I'm, I'm going to get yes. that right someday. Yes, indeed, yeah. uh, I'm in Montreal, so I'm going to talk uh, Canadian content here. You have uh, <clears> one of Canada's greatest singers, Bernard Shaw, uh, fronting the band and has done so for many years. Just quickly talk to me about Bernie and, and what he brings to the band and just talk about his voice because you had David Byron. Sure. And that was sort of <clears throat> the voice of rock or one of the greatest voices of rock. And now you, you're getting a new voice, but some of those older songs, you know, the fans, they have David's. But yet when Bernie comes out and sings them, you go, yeah, I love David, but this guy's got it. So so talk to me about Bernie or Bernard and, and think, what he brings the to the first, band. The first, yeah, the first thing about getting Bernie into the band was that um, actually he was, he was playing uh, with a band called Stratus, who had Clyde Burr on drums, or, you know, Exit Iron Maiden. And they were at the marquee, and I went along to see see the band because I was looking for a singer and um, I heard Bernie's voice and I, I was at the back I didn't know the songs but I was seeing if our our voices matched because I sing all the high harmonies and they did and so I met him after and we went back to his his apartment in London and um, set a day for the audition and he came in and nailed it and I, and I thought wow he's done all his own work but little did I know he was in a band called Cold Sweat playing heap songs before so he knew them all anyway <laughs> But um, anyway, he came into the band, and, and the reason I chose him, to be honest, was that he's, he's got the um, the vocal capabilities to cover every era of Uriah Heep, every decade that's been with every singer, because he's, he's got the range, he's got the range of David, and you know, sometimes, just occasionally, I'll be on stage and, and we'll be singing one of the old songs, and I'll get that that tingle got my spine because he's touched the same nerve that David used to do. So it's, it's really cool. It's incredibly cool. And the fact that he's been around for so long is, is wonderful. Um, let me quickly get over to the, the band's history because you have been around for, God, since uh, 1969, right? It's the, the year well, after next I... Year's our 50, 50th. Next year's our 50th anniversary. Okay, so... So, and, and of course, Judas Priest is getting to that, uh, that, that mark and the Scorpions are getting to that mark. Talk to me about some of the changes you've seen over the years in the music industry and, and how have you managed to succeed? Because obviously there are periods of great success and then there, of course, there are periods of, oof, we could use a help, little helping hand. Every band goes through that. So, so talk to me about... It's a roller coaster of life, you know, to yeah. be honest. Yeah, I totally agree. <clears throat> and I think it's your, your, your drive and passion that gets you through all the hard times, you know, and, and, and that's what drives you on to carry on. Um, and it's like everything in life. You're going to get those great moments. You're going to get those really down moments, you know, but it's your strength and belief in yourself to, to, to bring it on through. I've always been a firm believer that if you get really good musicians playing great songs, you can't go wrong. And that's been my template for life all the way along. And it's been working. So let's get back to uh, Living the Dream for a second. We, we spoke about the <clears throat> album back in the fall, but let me talk to you a little bit more about it now. Uh, and again, after almost 50 years and you had 24 albums at the point now this is 25 why bother making a new album why not just go out on tour with judas priest and and string together the best 12 songs and say here you go folks here's you know whatever easy living here's why bother with new music is there still a marketplace for albums well i think that's one of the reasons that judas priest chose us because they they've just got a new album out firepower which is which people are saying is one of the best of their career and we've just got a new album out, Living the Dream, with people saying exactly the same thing. It's one of the best of our career. So um, I think they, they, they feel that we're the same as them. We're always moving forward. We're always forward thinking. And um, for us, you know, it, it, it's a necessity as a band to, to make new music. 
Um, we couldn't go out and just stir our shoes and play all the old stuff time and time again because you, 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 you'll get no joy of that, out of that in the end. You know, we'll just be going through the motions. And that's one thing this band doesn't do. If you see us on stage, it's, it's 110% every night. Um, and, and that's the way I like to, like to have it because then when you put new songs in alongside some of the old classic songs um, and you see how they fit so well, um, it, it, it just livens everything up, you know, and, 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 and it also livens us up in terms of playing the old tracks because, you know, to us, play, playing the old tracks in front of an audience is, 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 is the audience that gives us the buzz for that because, you know, you, you, you play the, the, the first riff and the, and, and the fist go in the air, you know, that, that just gets your adrenaline going, you're off, you know, you're lost in the, in the whole song. And um, so, yeah, so, but it's very important for us to keep moving forward and we always have done and we always will. Yeah, so I'm going to ask you. And about... we won't stop here. We'll have another album. We'll, we'll continue writing. I mean, it's what you do, you know. I mean, I write something probably every day, whether it be a riff, uh, a, a lyric, or um, a title, or a blog, or something I'm writing in a book, or something. You know, and there's many, 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 many ways of being creative, and and I think it's great to be, you know, to be doing all of it. Okay, so uh, in fact, I was going to ask you a different question, but let me ask. Let me take you up on that. What sort of uh, motivates the creative force now, or the creative energy? It, it, you know, is it the same stuff as back in the day of at Look at Yourself and Demons and Wizards, and and you write a song based for Uriah Heep, or are you inspired differently now? Has the creative or the creative process in coming up with songs changed at all for you? I don't think we ever write just for the band. What we do is just write because I think you don't want to restrict yourself in any way because sometimes something a bit left-field brought back in can, can really work for the band in, 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 a, in a very strong, powerful way. So um, I think Waters Flowing would be, a, um, off a new album would be an example of that. Um, but, you know, we, the thing is we just write, and then what we do is when, when it's time for a new album, Phil Anson, my keyboard player, myself, who are the writers, main writers, we get in a room and um, he's got all his keyboard ideas, I've got all my guitar ideas, we put them together, <clears throat> and we kind of choose the ones that we think the band are going to like. And then we take that to the band, and then some of them are put in the bin in 30 seconds, <laughs> and some of them are worked on. And then, and the minute the band puts its 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 stamp on it, it becomes your eye immediately. It really does. And, and so, when do you think we might <clears throat> see the next new album? Because the the new one is still very fresh. When do we sort of start thinking? Okay, well, that was good. Living the dream is great, but now we need the next one. Is that something that you look at for the end of 2019, or are we looking at 2020, or even further down the road? It, it would normally it would be 2020, but because that's our 50th anniversary and we've got many, many ways to celebrate that, um, it would be very difficult to lock ourselves in the studio because that would, that would sort of take us away from the celebration <laughs> um, that we'd like to do out on the road. So I, I, think, um, I think in 2020 we'll be looking towards doing it, but whether we do it then or later, or later is, is up for grabs, to be honest. Okay, so how do you celebrate 50 years? Do you look back at some of the earlier albums and, and do deluxe editions and remixes and, and bonus discs and all this? Is it simply... Yeah, I think BMG, BMG have already done quite a lot of that, but they're, they're, they True. are doing, because um, they own the back, a lot of the back catalogue, and they are going to do exactly what you say there, um, a super-duper box set with everything in, yeah, um, which it are doing to commemorate the 50 years, and that would be marvellous. Um, but, you know, there's other things we need to do musically and stuff like that. Uh, you know, maybe we'll look at orchestras, maybe we'll look at doing this, that and the other. You know, there's there's a whole bunch of things that we, we, we've put on the table and we, we're, we're letting our management work out you know, what, what's possible and what isn't. Do you look at 
album tours, meaning where you, you play, and I keep referring to Demons and Wizards, but do, do you go out and play Demons and Wizards in full, top to bottom? Is that something that, that's, that might well, be we've, on? We've already done that. We True. did that in Japan. We did that True. in, in um, a festival in England. Um, we, we've done it at various times. And um, so we've almost done that, if you like. Uh, whether we continue to do it or we think it's a strong enough idea to take around the world, I don't know. I don't really know. It's, it's down to um, management and promoters. Whether promoters would, would would you know think that was a great idea. Good. Now uh, let me let me ask you this: uh, Over the fifty years, the band has changed members on numerous occasions. You're sort of the last man standing. Talk to me about the motivation to keep the brand name alive, Uriah Heep. Why not have become at some <clears throat> point Mick Box? solo artist doing the best uh, talk to me about the importance of keeping a brand name but also keeping the band alive because you sort of put your blood sweat and tears in this for 50 years and and why just sort of go hey you know yeah yeah i mean i did, I did get offers to, to go off and do the mcboxing by my agent and stuff like that you know but i've always bucked against that because you know by keeping the unfortunate thing in life, we've lost a lot of good players along the way, whether it be the drugs, drinks, or whether, or just straightforward illness. And um, by keeping the band alive, I keep their legacy alive. And you know, when new fans come in and find out about the band, either through just and new album, living the dream, or whatever entry to the band they have, then there's that whole wealth of material from great musicians, great singers, and um, that is still there to be to be listen to, you know, and learn from, you know, if you want to learn anything about bass playing, go and listen to Gary Thane, because he, he was fantastic. You want to hear about, you know, you, you want to hear a great vocalist, then go and listen to David Byron's version of anything, because he was one of the few singers I know that didn't just sing the song as a vehicle, he lived inside the song, you know. Um, so it's just keeping that, that legacy alive, which is the most, most important thing to me. It really is. And, and to be fair, uh, Phil and uh, Bernie have been there since 86. So you're looking at, uh, help me with my math, what, 33 years? So so it's not like they just That's showed up. It, yeah. yeah. It's, it's not like they just showed up last week. So, so you know, any band that has 30 years behind them or any member that has to, they're as much a part of the band as, as anybody else. And, and absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, they're in there longer than some of the people that were in there before. I, you know, they're, they're probably longer serving members, to be honest. They are. In fact, we never and, talk and, about and Phil. And that's great, too, you know, and, and, and the good thing about them is that they, they recognize what great songs we had in our history, and so playing them is a, is a joy to them rather than, um, um, you know, being told what to do. They, they, they do it because they love it. Yeah, and you know what? In, in our last two or three interviews, we've actually never talked about Phil, so I'm going to throw Phil in here today because uh, he's been sure. with you since 86. Um, just, you know, to, what does he bring? Because he, he's, of course, done some stuff with Mick Ronson and some stuff <clears> with Sweet and, some, and, of course, plenty of stuff with Uriah Heep. Um, and we've never talked about him. So, so talk to me about Phil and why you've, why you've uh, kept him around for 33 years as, as a, a sideman. Or well, well, I was looking for a keyboard player, and um, I'd seen him play at the Marquee Club in, in uh, a band called Grand Prix. And... Um, I just, you know, I'm one of these people that I register good musicians and players that I think would fit into what I do. It's just something I do all the time. Um, and I thought, wow, wow, I think I think this guy would really work. Um, but I just track him down, and he was he was with the Sweet. In fact, he was in Sweet in Australia on an Australian tour, and they were down in Tasmania. And I tracked him down to a phone phone box. 
And he couldn't believe that I'd, I'd spent this time tracking him down. I just said to him a couple of words. I said, look, if you're in Scotland Suite, that's absolutely fine by me. But I've got a Hammond organ, I've got a B3, I've got the record contract, and I've got a long tours. I said, you know, it's, I've got it all singing and dancing. If for any minute you were thinking of this was, you know, you were you were with Sweet just for the, you know, for a one-off tour, and and you wanted some something more permanent, let's meet up in London. He said, give me the set list. So I actually said the set list over the phone to him and he wrote them down and while he was on tour with Sweet he, he, he got them all on a cassette you know because in, in those days it was cassettes and uh, he, he learned them all so when he came back to London he actually knew all the songs so sitting him behind the M and organ it was almost like you know um, uh, a, a comfy shoe already you know he was there it was fantastic yeah. and then, then I met I met Phil and, and immediately we were on the same wavelength and on, on every Every level in terms of uh, musicality, in terms of humour, uh, virtually in terms of everything, you know. And um, so there's a good camaraderie there. And then as a, as a writing team, we, we we were very strong from the first song on. And so um, we just grew and it blossomed and, and, and Phil's been there ever since. It's an integral part of what he was all about. Yeah, 33 years going strong, and uh, I see we're running out of time, so we'll finish with this. Uh, David Byron, when you look back at the 70s and early 80s, you know, these rock vocalists come to mind, Robert Plant, Freddie Mercury, so on and so forth. Uh, and sometimes David is left aside and not mentioned, but he's, to me, he's right up there with the with those greats. Um, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So just to quickly talk to me about what he brought and, and the uniqueness of his voice, but also his showmanship, because he, he was he was a great Frontman, one of the best frontmen from that era. He was a, an incredible frontman, to be honest. You know, he, he had he had so so much charisma; it was just unbelievable. I mean, if you look at a venue like the Albert Hall in London, which has you know about fifty entrances and exits, um, and 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 the venue was full. When David arrived, whatever exit he came in, you know he was there. You know, he was that sort of guy. You know, he, he, he never came in quietly. <laughs> he was just extroverted. And, and he never left. Whatever he was on stage, he, he was like that at home as well. You know, he was just totally full on. But his charisma was bar none. I think on stage he had the ability, certainly for the musicians, let alone the audience, of us not knowing what he was going to do next. Yeah, which is good. One minute he'd be standing there, next minute he'd be doing a backflip, next minute he's hanging onto your leg, next minute he's climbing up something. You know, he was just one of those guys that, you know, you just couldn't take your eyes off. And he had those piercing brown eyes, that, that, that sort of mad look, you know. And, and while all this was going on, he was singing the most beautiful songs in the most beautiful way. <laughs> yeah, and, and... So it was quite, quite incredible. And you love your your singers to be a little bit dangerous. That's what that's what you want from them. Uh, I will quickly remind folks that the band is on tour with Judas Priest. It runs all the way to June 29th in Las Vegas. You know, I'm going to Albany, but maybe I should go to Las Vegas. <laughs> that sounds like a better a better <laughs> evening. But uh, and of course, the new album is Living the Dream. And folks, I have heard it uh, many times, not just once. And Grays by Heaven, uh, Knocking at My Door, Living the Dream, Dreams of Yesterday, etc. It, I was going to swear there, but it's it's effing phenomenal. It is really, you are not just going through the motions. You are delivering new music with a passion and and an, and, a, and an angst like like you did back in 1973. It's, it's just terrific. 
It, it just, it, and that's exactly what it feels like, you know, that, that we are in 1973. We're out there giving it some again, you know. It's 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 that passion that that, that I think that, that every member of the band's got, you know, and and um, and we go out there and we try and nail it every night, you know. We do everything we can to to we we, we play every gig like it's our last gig, and I think that's the way you should be. And and I give full credit to the Canadian. Uh, it, it has to be the Canadian that's making it great, right? That's that's how it works. Pardon? I said I'm giving full credit to the Canadian in the band because it's the Canadian that makes it great, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, we had a lot going before the Canadian joined, but he's joined in with the party very well, thank you. Very well, there you go. Uh, Mick, always, always a pleasure. I will see you in Albany, and as we say in Montreal, merci beaucoup. Thank you very, very much. Lo- look forward to it, my friend. Happy Cheers. Days. Thank Cheers you. now. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Rock Talk. And a very big thank you to Mick Box. Of course, the band is on tour with Judas Priest. That runs all the way to uh, June 29th uh, down in Las Vegas. But uh, let us get on to our second guest, which happens to be Jim Peterick. And our co-host happens to be, well, you guessed it, Jim Peterick. Uh, now this is a first, right? This, this is a first for me. I've never co-hosted with somebody who's been a guest. So um, let me ask you this: we, we did the interview last week. How do you think it turned out? I thought it was an incredibly good chat. Now, please feel free to lie and tell me how awesome it was. Um, but no, it, it, it was it was a fun chat. I wouldn't be I wouldn't be lying. You know, you know I do a lot of interviews in. Uh, you know, not to kiss your existence, but you're very uh, well prepared. You seem to know what you're doing. Hell, you even bought a copy of the album, which is like, no, no reviewers do that. You know, they rely on Spotify, they rely on whatever. And um, it, it means a lot to an artist, you know, that people are buying real estate in what I do. Yeah, and and not to pat myself on the back, but I went out and got the the Japanese version from a company called CD Japan that I've dealt with for 20 years. Absolutely amazing if you want a, a Japanese import. But there was a 13th track on there. Now, I have no idea what the 13th track is because the CD hasn't arrived in the mail yet, but it was all written in Japanese, and I just went, well, there's 13 of them, so I'm taking this version. But listen. Yeah, well, it's kind of a great, great 13th track. Usually what Frontier's requests for Japan is a, uh, you know, an unplugged version of a song that's already on there. So I took uh, You're Always There, the song I wrote with Jason Sheff, and he delivers so well vocally. And it's amazing uh, orchestra. Well, I hate to call it orchestration. It sounds like Lawrence Welk, but a string arrangement by Jeff Lance, a dear friend of mine who does a lot of rock and roll uh, arrangements. And we stripped away the drums, all those nasty elements, and it's just this gorgeous version of that song. So that's what you're getting. Oh, I can't, I can't wait. Now, of course, during the interview, you'll hear us talk about who's on the album, from from Dennis DeYoung to Mike Reno to to the guys in Work of Art, and then. But since we did the interview, and and this was absolutely coincidental, I had uh, booked the interview with you, and I had booked an interview with. Mike Reno of Loverboy, and at the time, I hadn't listened to either album, or and I hadn't done the research on anything, and of course, Mike is on this doing a song called Without a Bullet Being Fired, and so of course, before your interview, and, and then back again before Mike's interview, which was a few days after yours, I spent a lot of time listening to that song, and that is by far one of the best 
Loverboy songs that Loverboy has not recorded. It is absolutely in your face, energetic. So just just and 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 folks, you'll hear the Mike Reno interview in a couple of weeks, but he talks greatly about Jim and and the song and just before we get to the interview and maybe hear the story a little more, just just give me a little extra context on that song because it's it's Canadian time. So we're talking about Bernie Shaw with Uriah Heep, who's a Canadian singer. So this will be the Canadian singer episode. So a little a little something on Mike Reno. Yeah, well, Mike Mike is a prince, and we used to get along so well on the road. Uh, you know, in the eighties, you know, when music was music. Uh, boy, that makes me sound old. But anyway, uh, he was the guy that, you know, we'd go out for a couple of beers after the show and he would take off his, uh, his stage outfit. He was always in the red leathers, you know, for, uh, for live and, and the bandana, you know, he still would not let anybody on stage with a, with a headband. I tried to wear a head headband one t- time when we did the show together, Peter, take that headband off. That's my trademark. <laughs> so, I mean, we're, we're, and I'm serious and he was kind of kidding, but kind of serious, you know? So anyway, long story short, he did a world stage show with me uh, in in January uh, of last year. And I said, you got to stay over and we got to write some songs. You know, actually, it wasn't January. It was in the middle of the year, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, I do a lot of shows. And uh, so he stayed over next to four days. And uh, I remember sitting at another bar and we were going through ideas. And I said, I like this title without a bullet being fired. He said, I like that. Yeah, she took my heart without a bullet being fired. I mean, it, it's, you know, it's all about finding a different way to say you love a chick and uh, and you want to go to bed with her. But you just got to, you know, find out cool ways of saying it. So we just started talking and you know, writing down notes, scribbling down papers as we dr- drank our, our draft. And uh, the next day we wrote the song. And uh, and then the next day we recorded it. And, and you know, you mentioned Loverboy. And, of course, that was the thing we were trying to channel, just like when I wrote with Dennis DeYoung for Proof of Heaven, which is on, on the New World Stage album. I said, forget that. You know, I love, you know, your, your solo stuff, you know, with uh, Desert Moon and all that. But I want to hear the stuff you made Sticks famous for, the theatrical, the, you know, the the very dramatic stuff that you were a part of Sticks to. And you brought that. And we wrote Proof of Heaven and it's getting huge reviews, just like Bullet being fired with Mike because we tapped into that energy of of Loverboy. And I yeah. said, I want you to get in that in that mind frame where, yeah. you, where you're you're killing it on stage with working for the weekend, uh, the kids hot tonight, that thing. And the girls are going nuts. That's what we got to write. And, and that's what came out. And and I'll tell you what's funny about that, because I, I spoke to Mike and he told me how the writing session came together. And he said, oh, you know, Loverboy, we were on tour and we had some other shows and and I and, I, and we happened to be near Chicago or something. So we just stayed and, and I wrote with Jim. But but his take on it was, you know what, I'm older. And when I get on planes, my legs start hurting. So I figured, you know what, instead of flying home, I'll just stay here with Jim. <laughs> we'll do the song. Yeah. But hey, whatever works, right? Well, that's pretty much it. I didn't want to talk about the legs. But, you know, anyway, uh, we had a blast. And, you know, we both like food and we both like a little bit of, uh, you know, the spirits. And so after we cut that thing, we, we partied down at a restaurant near my house called Capri Italian Place. And we had steaks and I had my martini and I, I don't know what he had. A bunch of stuff. <laughs> but it, that's where good times come from, you know. 
Yeah, it, absolutely. So let's uh, let's get over to the actual interview because uh, why not? It was it was a great half hour chat talking about the album Winds of Chains, Jim Pederick or Peterick, sorry, and World Stage. Yeah, I'm Canadian. The, Can- the, Can- the the UK in me wants to say Pederick, but the proper. I know everybody from England says Pederick, and I go, it's Peterick. Who Peter. cares? As long as you. You signed the checks to, to my name. <laughs> exactly. So here he is, uh, the one, uh, the only, uh, well, more of uh, Jim Peterick. The album is Winds of Change. Check it out. Thanks, Mitch. We are speaking with Jim Peterick. The new album, of course, is Winds of Change. It is actually released today. Now, folks are going to hear the interview next week, but it came out April 26th. So it is fresh from today. Uh, good day, Jim. Pleasure to talk to you. So good to talk to you again, Mitch, uh, in Montreal, right? Yes, beautiful, beautiful Montreal. And uh, yeah, you're, it's, 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 it's unfortunately a flood zone these days, which makes life a little bit more difficult. But I am very much looking forward to it, to chatting about this album. And uh, I have to say, and this is sort of random, but uh, last week my interview was actually with Dave Bickler, and uh, mm-hmm. he, he was very, very nice and cordial about the whole uh, Survivor stuff and all that. So uh, it's nice to hear everybody still making music, still out there, still working. And so let, let's talk Winds of Change. Now, the first person who made me aware of this album was Dennis D. Young. He, he emailed me the, the link to the video and he said, man, you got to check this out. And, and I listened to it and I was like... Yeah, that's that is what I like. I mean, it really sounded like a classic sort of stick song. So, so talk to me about sort of the concept and all these different people that you've worked with and putting it together. And and let, let's just start with sort of what was the genesis? Was this like I'm just gonna go get these people, or were you writing songs and you said, you know, who'd really be good on this? How did it sort of come about? <laughs> yeah, well, a little of all of that alchemy that that happens when when. Uh you start making a record. Uh, you know, Mitch, of course, the first one was way back in 2001. Very, very same concept, very similar concept, and actually some of the same guests. But that album, uh, you know, was not on Frontiers. That was a, a like an independent release, and it did very well. But Serafino of, of Frontiers was always a big fan of that record. Uh, and finally, you know, t- almost 20 years later, after numerous albums with, with Frontiers, you know, from Jim Peterick to Pride of Lions and God, God knows, you know, the Torch album, the Jimmy Jameson tribute album, so many albums with, with Frontiers. He finally said, Maestro, don't you think it's time for another uh, uh, world stage album? He said, I really want to break you and all these artists, not only in Europe, but also in, in, uh, in America and Canada. I said, sounds like a plan. And uh, I went right to work and I, you know, I started calling people, you know, I, I didn't even have a, one song written yet, but I knew the kind of people that I wanted on this album. You know, one of the first, you know, persons I called was Don Barnes, 30th special. And then, you know, right down the pike, you know, with Mike Reno, Dennis Young, Kevin Chalfon, Toby Hitchcock, Kevin Crone and Danny Vaughn of Taiketo, uh, Lars Sufson, Kelly Kagey, Jason Chef, Matthew and, Gunnar Nelson. And of course, I, I couldn't call Jimmy Jameson because he's deceased and sadly so. But my brain started working about, you know, getting all these people into Chicago or me going to Atlanta or me going to 
L.A. or wherever I needed to go to find these people. One thing that I love to do is get people in the same room to write a song. And, you know, nowadays, Mitch, with technology, you can do it via, you know, Internet and, and Skype and all these groovy things. And you can do that. And there were a couple of songs written with people across the, the miles, especially like, um, you know, work of art out in Sweden. But, uh, but something about the synergy of people sitting in the same room together uh, that really, really brings about a great song and a great vocal performance. So that's really the genesis of this record. Yeah, and and you mentioned work of art, and, and I think a lot of North Americans won't understand who that might be. But work of art is this incredibly brilliant melodic rock band out of Sweden, and of course you've got uh, two of the guys here. Um, uh, I'm going to help me with the names, perhaps, but Lars Sansun Safsun. Well, uh, <laughs> you can say Montreal, but you can't say Lars Safsun. Safsun, and of course Robert. <laughs> now, I've actually interviewed Robert in the past, and because I I, I love work of art, but so I'm going to ask you about that. How did you get? How did they get to your attention? Because I don't want to say that they're sort of a niche band. But you sort of got to be really into the melodic rock scene to sort of appreciate them, uh, and and some of their they've done I think three albums now, just great yeah. stuff. So how, how did they come to your attention? Well, you said melodic rock, and it's very ironic because I met them at the Melodic Rock Festival that uh, Andrew McNeese held about three years ago, and uh, it was on the morning after the big show. I wasn't able to make, I wasn't able to perform in the big show, but the next morning was kind of a brunch unplugged concert at the hotel and um right before i went on was work of art and it was unplugged just like i was and these guys you know immediately you're, you're taken with their songs with lars's incredible voice i'm a sucker for a great voice as you might understand with work with dave bickler you know and don barnes and the great late jimmy jameson i heard oh and of course uh toby hitchcock and, and mark Shearer. I love great voices because they bring the best out of me uh, as a songwriter, as, as a lyricist. So I was knocked out and I started talking to them. It turns out they were big Peter Rick fans, which I love that. And, uh, and then the next thing you know, we were writing a song for the Torch album for the Jimmy Jameson tribute album called The Music Remembers. And that's when I knew that we had a real synergy. Uh, and um, so I actually wrote uh, Where Eagles Dare on my own and send it to them with my vocal on it. And I asked him, what do you think? And they loved it. And they took the track and, uh, and Lars sang and Robert played. And it's what you hear now. It's one of my, it's, it's an off the center, off left to center track compared to the rest of it. But it's one of my favorite tracks, Where Eagles Dare. Where Eagles Dare. And of course, uh, guess, guess who introduced me to work of art? The one and only Andrew Crap. McNeese, right? Of course, he, he <laughs> of course. is he is ubiquitous, and and and, and you know what? I'm going to give him a shout out. I love Andrew. Uh, he has a website called melodicrock.com, and if you like this style of music, he has been doing this God Almighty since '94, '95. I mean, his his he's the expert. So go go check that out. But anyway, let well, me get yeah, yeah. I call he's one of my dear friends, and uh, was one more thing I want to say. Oh. I know, and, and that is I collaborated on four songs on the brand new Work of Art album, which is really uh, an exciting album. So we're, uh, we're buds, man. 
Yeah, and we we got to let the folks know that there's a lot of great music. There's there's of course your album, this album, but there's 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 some people in the wings re- ready to happen and, and work of art's one of them. But anyway, uh let me quickly get over to uh, Without a Bullet Being Fired, uh, working with Mike Reno. Mike is my interview next week. I love Loverboy. They are Canada's, you know, they represent Canada. Talk to me about getting Mike on there and what he brings cuz his voice I think is Perhaps one of the most underrated voices in rock. When you, when you think of some of the big ones, obviously it's Robert Plant and it's David Lee Roth and it's this and that. You know, Dennis D. Young. But Mike ain't no slouch, man. He he can he can wail with the best of them. Well, he he really can. And and to me, what makes a great singer? There's so many things that that make up a, a great voice. But one of them is that they have a sound that nobody else has. They're unique. You hear Jimmy Jameson, you know it's Jimmy Jameson. You hear Dennis T. Young, couldn't be anyone else. Same with Mike Reno. He has a certain sound. And um, look, I knew that right away. We were touring with um, with Loverboy back when Survivor was, you know, top of the charts, and they were too. And uh, you know, Mike would get out there with Loverboy in his red leather pants and and bandana and just knock him dead. And the girls in the front three rows were, you know being girls they loved mike and uh in fact when when uh, mike and i got together for this uh writing session for bullet he had just uh, did a show with me for world stage he's like one of my repeaters with my world stage concerts and um and he always rips it up and i said mike can you stay three days later let's write a song and record it he likes to work quick just like i do because you know you, you capture the moment and so after the show, Sunday, we took off, had dinner. Monday, what do you think of this? Without a bullet being fired. Oh, man, dude, what a great concept. He, she took my heart without a bullet being fired. You know, we're going back and forth. It, it was just incredible uh, chemistry. I said, okay, now I want you to tap your inner rock star from 1981. And you're out there with your red leathers and you're singing, working for the weekend. That's what I want. And we went, <laughs> we just went for it. And, uh, man, that track's got so much energy. You know, you can't sit still. You really can't, and it's a really fun album. So let me ask, because you just mentioned that you like to work quick. Talk to me about the recording process, because, you know, back in the day, uh, especially when I was doing interviews back in the early 90s and stuff, people were still getting into the, you would go in four on the floor, there was a bass set up in the side, you know, a drum set up in the corner of the room, and the bass guitar and the amps, and the guys would go in, and they'd record, and, and now we've gotten to Pro Tool everything and Auto Tune everything, and you can layer seventy nine guitars. And what's sort of your preference for for recording? Because you are right. To me, if you listen to an early Sabbath album or an early where they you know did it in like three days, there's a magic. There's there, there's a magic in the mistakes. Sometimes some of those mistakes, you go, oh man, that's what's what sort of your take on on recording and and today's technology. Well, I kind of like to split the difference, Mitch. I mean, obviously, there's some great advantages to Pro Tools uh, in terms of edits. You know, it used to be when you had too many choruses, you had to recut it, you know, uh, or if you needed to add a bridge or, you know, those are very boring technical things where you had miles of tape on, on the floor and you had a couple of razor blades. Don't have to do that anymore. Great. But you know, when it comes down to auto-tuning, first of all, I hate it. And if I can hear it, unless you want to be share or on purpose, fine. But if you don't want to hear it, don't use it or be so judicious. 
I don't think there's practically any auto tune on this record. Um, also, you know, just the feel of things. Not everything has to be cut to a click track. Um, you know, to go way back in time, my very first uh, hit, million seller called Vehicle, we didn't know what a click track was. And the verse was a totally different tempo than the chorus. I like those kind of things. You know, with Bullet being fired, I don't think that was a click track. And when that chorus hits, it gets faster. So, you know, I like some of the new things, but I don't like to get mired in the um, robotic kind of thing that a lot of times I hear. Yeah, and you're right. How can I put this? I I think we've lost a little bit of the soul in music where everything has become so sanitized and so sterilized that it has no feel anymore. And it's like, eh. And that's, by the way, what I like about your album and and some of the guys you've brought on there. When you listen to Cronin, uh, when you listen to De Young and stuff, they still know how to make it with that heart and soul. But um, just before I get to more of the album, you've recorded, of course, with the Ides of March and Chase and Survivor. But you've also had with World Stage and Prides Along. Talk to me about having all these sort of different uh, entities to go record with and make music with. Because we talk so much about bands and brands and and having an, an identifiable brand and yet you've gone and had different sort of projects. Um, should you maybe have focused on just I'm Jim Petterick or I'm just Survivor or I'm just, you know, uh, World Stage? Talk to me about sort of moving around and having these different entities to go to. <laughs> great point. Great point. I think Jim Petterick's brand is that diversity. I'm the Whitman sampler chocolates of, of rock writers because I love I'm a fan of everything almost every genre. There's a few genres that I'm not fans of, and I think you might be able to guess them. But, uh, you know, the bottom line is Ides of March um, was a a sample of me so young that I really didn't know who I was. And the Ides of March suffered a little bit. You know, we started in 66 as a British invasion wannabe, had a hit called You Wouldn't Listen in 66, morphed into a horn band. Vehicle was the big moment. And then our manager said, horns are out. Clive Davis told me so. And we believed him. And we kind of went into our Crosby, Stills, Nash uh, harmony phase. And and, and we uh, broke up technically in, in 73. And uh, But then I realized, you know, as time went on, that that might be my t- one of my talents. And that's when I was able to spread myself around and, and kind of become the of the, you know, sixth member of 38 special or, or right with 38 or with Sammy Hagar with his style or, you know, create a, a new brand with Pride of Lions. Uh, so I guess, you know, in a way I'm, I'm born to be that and I'm, I'm proud of it. I love the diversity of that. Yeah. And that, so how, how do you advance, how do you approach recording with these different things? Because you're still Jim. Whether you're in one of these different bands, you're still Jim. You still have, you know, your head and your vision and your what you sounds good and sounds bad. So, so how do you go into these different projects and go, okay, I'm going to offer this one a little bit something different and not just be Jim, but in a different band. You know what I mean? Like, how do you sort of create an identity within that new structure? Well, you know, that's a great question. You know, as I said, I'm such a fan of, for instance, every every artist on this world stage album. And I kind of know what makes them tick. You know, I've listened to all their music through the years and sometimes I helped create their sound with 38 special. They were a very, you know, 
southern rock band until they came to Chicago, and I kind of added my my commercial pop uh, sensibilities onto their great riffs and their great singing, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm kind of like, you know, musical tofu. I I, kind of take on the colors and flavors of the room. Uh, Mike Reno, same thing, huge fan of Loverboy. Dennis DeYoung, I don't have to tell you, and I know we'll talk about that track. But, uh, you know, it, it as it goes, Kevin Cronin, I steep myself in what they do. And then I, I get little seeds of ideas. I present them and they go, no, that's really not me. Or, you know, you nailed it. And let's write that. that that's a good point. And I'm going to ask you this and, and, and don't take offense, but I'm going to ask you this. You, you have gotten to the point in your career where you can look back at all these bands you could pick out a, a song or two from each or, 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 you know, Eye of the Tiger or whatever. And you could go on stage and do 15 songs, 75 minutes set, and fans would leave happy because the songs are that great. Why Thank bother? You. Yeah, they are. They, I mean, they, they, they are the soundtrack of a lot of people's lives, you know. So, so, so why bother with new music? Why put yourself through the creative process, through the hassle, through the, the, the streaming stuff? And I got a record company and I have... Why not just say, hey, let's gather a couple of these buddies. Let's go do a 75-minute set. We'll play the casinos, the state fairs, or, or whatever we're going to do. We'll make, some, we'll make some change. And, you know, so why bother having to sort of have that creative struggle to make new music? And I don't mean to be insulting, well, obviously. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is the first time I've really been asked that. And I have an answer already because uh, that's what we do. That's what we do. I mean, I put on my... Uh, you know, my optimistic, I'm very optimistic. I, I think you can tell that I'm always thinking, you know, people ask me, what's the best song you ever wrote? And I go, well, maybe I haven't wrote it yet. You know, maybe I haven't written it yet, but it's the very struggle I have with so many artists from that era, from my era that feel that same way. And I'm like the cheerleader that's telling Don Barnes, dude, get off the road for a minute. Okay. Let's make some new music. Your fans are going to love you for it. Reno, come on, let's let's go. Dennis, you can ask Dennis when when you when you talk to him about you know me kind of like pulling him up by his bootstraps, having dinner with him, and said, "Come on, man." You know, he said, oh, "Records don't sell anymore." I made a great record. I can't do one better than the one I did in two thousand and nine. I said, "Of course you can do a record better than the one you did in two thousand and nine." You know, come on, let's go. Uh, I did the same thing with all these people. And now Kelly, you know, Kelly K. He's a self-starter. He never stops, you know. No. But it, you I know, mean, the guy had heart not... surgery and was back on the drum kit. What, like four <laughs> days later? I mean, you know. Well, it was it was three months, but you know. <laughs> but it, still, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> he, he is just. He's like me. We gotta keep moving, making new music. That's what we do. That's what we love to do. You know, Billy Joel stopped. Okay, that's his prerogative. He can certainly get enough bread. You know, it's not about the bread. It bread is nice. Pr- bread is the money is the you know the proof that you're getting through. But it's not why we do it. So, wh- what's the motivation in terms of, or what's the inspiration? I guess is the better word in terms of lyrical content. Because I guess you know when you're with Survivor, you're thinking, okay. We need to get on AM radio. We need to have a hit. And these are the songs that make hits. And this is the lyrics that you have. You know, you have a you know, hook, chorus, whatever. 
what's sort of the inspiration now? Is it sort of you have a free tableau where you just go, I can write whatever I want. I've done this long enough. Yeah. Or do you still have a, a sort of framework that you have to work within? And do you still talk about, you know, you know, world peace, world hunger, uh, hey, baby, be like, you know what I mean? Like what what sort of motivates you to write a song? Where do, where do the songs come from? Well, a lot of times real life, you know, I try not to write songs that are just fake, fake songs. I, I hear sometimes you hear, you see a movie or a made for TV movie and they have some guy write for a little scene and you know, it's, it's a fake song because it doesn't ring true. That same movie might actually pay some money for a real song. It stands out like a gem. It came from the heart. And I don't care what the subject is that I'm writing about. I, it's got to strike a chord chord with me. A lot of times it's love, loss of love, finding love. Uh, I like to find fresh uh, approaches to the whole battle of the sexes and the whole rock and roll of finding the right person. And the search is over. You were with me all the while. When I, when I came up with that idea, it was a goosebump. There it was. There it was. It, it was just presenting itself. So I'm always looking for a fresh way of, of saying the same thing or a very similar thing, but a little bit of different angle on that. I kind of stay away from politics. I do love the, the peace, um, you know, effort and, and the brotherhood and the unity. But in terms of, you know, being one of these, you know, pounding on the table about the Democrats, or the Republicans or whatever, that's not me. Um, so it's really about being fresh. That that is awesome. So so let's just quickly talk about uh, both our friend here, Dennis DeYoung, Proof of Heaven. Uh, when you do that song, and and I don't know if you take this as positive or negative, but it does sound like a classic stick song. Um, was that sort of the intent to make it sort of sound like this was 1976? Or, or talk to me about working with Dennis. Well, I could do, I could have, have, a, have a whole different interview about Dennis alone. You got another half hour. But anyway, I love Dennis. He li literally lives two blocks from, from my house. He used to live across town and on the south side. Then he started talking to me. He said, what do you think of the area you live? And I said, I love it. It's right near the two expressways, bum, bum, bum. He started looking at houses. He moved two, two blocks away from me. So that's a real blessing. I can literally walk over to his house with my guitar and start writing or recording. He's got a recording studio in his house. I have one in mine. We take turns, but it was probably about two years ago. We had dinner in the, uh, with our wives and, and, and Dennis and I, uh, and he said, you know, again, that same harangue, you know, about not selling. And I, I gave him pep talk and he started, uh, you know, drinking the Kool-Aid, you know, and then he says, you know, but I don't know what, what I want to sound like. I, he said, with my solo albums, I tried consciously not to sound like sticks. I said, why? You were a big part of that sound. Come on, man. You know wh where where the key is buried. You know it, what sticks is. You know, I mean, maybe not the Renegades and the Blue Collars, but so many of the songs, you know, the Come Sail Aways and the, and the Paradise Theater. Babe, come on, oh, babe. Babe, babe. Uh, you know, uh, on and on. That's Dennis. Why don't we do that? He says, well, I can do that. I said, well, let's do that. And, and we started writing songs with, like he said, no inhibitions of trying to not to be that. Let's not worry about that. 
if it sounds like sticks, it's only because he was a main, one of the main ingredients of that amazing band. So, you know, with wind, uh, excuse me, with proof of heaven, we just went for it, you know, and he, he you know, he has all these so- song seeds and he played me this chorus. It wasn't called proof of heaven yet, but it sounded like sticks. I could just imagine that three part harmony and we just started writing it. And, um, he said, you know, I want that on this record. Uh, and he meant my record. And I said, are you kidding? That should go on your record. Cause he's making a record too. And I'm, you know, writing with him and helping him playing guitar and playing a little bass on his record. He said, no, that song, I want that out on your record. And I was like blown away. So, um, yeah, he's not shying away from his legacy with this new album, either bullet or the stuff that he's creating for his new album. Oh, I can't wait. I'm going to, I'm going to have to email him and ask him about when is that, when is that coming out? But, uh, since we're speaking of songs that are sort of running through our heads, I've got two that are two of my favorite songs ever. And they're just, they're, they're running through my head as I'm listening to you speak. So it's uh, never run out of love and you're mm-hmm. all I want to do. You're all I want to do. Holy mackerel. Dude. Holy mackerel. You're the first person that said that in a few years. Oh, I will <laughs> never run out. Of... Anyway, um, it's such a great song. So that is for folks who, who may or may not know from Cheap Tricks, Woke Up With A Monster, an album that was produced by Ted Templeman of Van Halen fame. And for some reason, poo-pooed by a lot of the critics. But it truly is one of my favorites. I think it's great. And those two songs, especially You're All I Want to Do and Never Run Out of Love, are spectacular. I mean, they're as good as anything Cheap Tricks ever done. So so just talk to me just real quick about that from a very fanboy perspective for me. But but talk to me about working with Cheap Trick and, and sort of if you can remember back to 1994, you know, rock was was I don't want to say rock was dead, but it was on the intensive care unit list. It, it was it was hard to do. And and yet Cheap Trick comes out with this sort of we're going to get Van Halen, guys. We're going to get uh, Jim, who, who who knows melodic rock. We're going to throw everything in the fire. Let's do this. Um, talk to me. about. Did you write those songs fresh with those guys? Oh, in fact, oh, um, yeah. with Nelson or no, are these songs I, that you brought I, I, to I them? Remember it, I remember it all very, very well. Uh, I mean, I go back with Rick to 1966. You know, he was in Fuse. And I was in the Ides of March. He used to come over and, and see me play when I was with the Ides at these little clubs in, in Wisconsin. And I always saw this weird looking guy, you know, out there just taking it in. I, I didn't talk to him for a few, few gigs. He, he was, didn't introduce himself. Finally, we, we were out sharing a dressing room at, at, a, at a little kind of a club and he's so cheeky. He started writing the Ides of March suck all over the, the, the dressing room walls. And that bonded us forever, you know? Uh, so he's a dear, dear friend. And, um, I had been wanting to write, write with him for so many, many years. And finally, I think it was John Kalodner who just put, put the, you know, Kalodner wasn't producing or anything, but Kalodner's a big fan of mine and a big fan of trick. And why don't you get together with Jim? So we finally did. We must have written 10 songs for that record. And, uh, but only two really survived and it's a shame. And those are two of my favorite and actually never run out. of. I can't say it. Never run out of love is, was Teddy Templeman's favorite song in the whole album. That was a big flattery because I love Templeman's production and his taste in music. But, you know, I would go out to his Rockford estate. I call it a state because it's huge. And we'd write. And then he'd come out to, to my place and we'd record. 
and just just had a blast. And of course, I'm going to have never run out of love in my head for the entire <laughs> evening now. So that's actually a good thing, I think. Um, do you look back at any of these songs that you've written, whether it's heavy metal with Sammy or Never Run Out of Love or any of these, and think, I should do a, a record of not necessarily a covers album because they're my songs, but maybe I should do a record where I jimify some of these songs that have come in, that have come out over the last 30 years. Is, is that something that could be of an, an could be interesting as a fan. I'm like, yeah, please. Could you, <laughs> I never, never crossed my mind, Mitch. So if I do, I'll put a, do a dedication to you on it. I love it. I think, I think it would be, a, I, did, I was about to say a hoot, but okay. It'll be a hoot to hear you have your, your never run out of love or you have your heavy metal thing. And maybe the next world stage, you get, you get Dennis and, and, and Danny and, and Kelly to maybe sing on those songs or something. But, um, yeah. What's sort of the future here for, for this? Is this the album's out, thank you very much, and we're done? Or do you start thinking, hey, that was fun. Maybe we should do another one of these in two years, and maybe we should get a couple of these guys and go do a few sort of backyard barbecue gigs and, and just bring some of this music to the fans. Yeah. Well, there's all already things in motion on that. Um, and um, we have a booking agency in, uh, in America. We have a booking agency in, in Europe. Of course, uh, the one in America also books, you know, the Ides of March and, and all things Peterick, but very excited about putting some a big show together. Probably have to have to be in the fall, and at a you know major Chicago venue. Probably Chicago because, um, you know, that's where I live. But it doesn't have to be. But you know, there's scheduling is always a problem, and we got to you know surf around everybody's schedule. And I, I happen to pick some very popular artists, so there's there's always that. But uh, it's definitely uh, in our crystal ball. I'm going to ask you this since you mentioned Chicago. Are, are you a, a sports fan at all, for, or, or that's not your gig? I'm not, not in an, a huge sports fan. I mean, if the Bears are winning, man, I am a huge Bears fan. I'm, I'm a fair-weather sports fan. I hate to say it. I love the Cubs and the Sox. In two weeks, the Ides of March are singing the anthem for the White Sox. Um, but I'm not one of these guys that's chained to the, the TV on, on Sunday. All right. Um, so, um, that's kind of where that's at. I mean, I may have written eye of the tiger, but it doesn't mean I go to boxing matches. <laughs> yeah. And by the way, we, we've reached half an hour, so I, I will, I will leave it at that. And I will say to folks that uh, Jim Pederick and world stage winds of change is out now. We recorded this on April 26th. You're hearing it a couple of weeks later, but folks, uh, you know, go buy it. This streaming is, is, is nice, but buying is real. And, uh, Jim, always, always a pleasure. And, uh, man, I, if, if you, if you ever come to Montreal, I very much need to see this. And, and can you believe we did half an hour and there were no survivor questions and there were no eye of the tiger discussions. Now that's an interview. <laughs> that's an interview. That, that's, that's a new record. And I really enjoyed it. Um, your knowledge is, and your questions are so, um, they elicit really good, good responses. So thank you so much for what you do and your passion. Yeah, absolutely, Jim. And uh, I, really, uh, listen, if you need any help getting to Montreal, just uh, give me a call because I know all the promoters. But we need, we need to see this stuff. We need to see this stuff live. I mean, this album is is too good just to sort of live on somebody's shelf somewhere. You, you really need to feel the sweat you know, as you guys play this under the, the hot summer sun. So I hope, I hope it happens and uh, folks go buy it. 
Merci, Monsieur. I, I would too. Thanks so much, man. Yeah, thank you. And uh, yeah, we'll do we'll do this again anytime you've got something. Let's do it again. And I would uh, recommend folks go check check out the um, what is it? I guess the discography or, or or the song list of the stuff you've written. I mean, there are so many songs that people uh, may Jim or may Peter, not. Jim Peter, yeah, JimPeter.com. I have a newly designed newly designed website that's very. Uh, informative and you can find everything the videos everything yeah and you, you just look at these songs whether they're the 38 special songs or the the cheap trick songs like i just quoted uh you just look at this and you go oh he wrote that oh he he wrote that oh he <laughs> it's unbelievable uh thank you sir à la prochaine as we say in up here in montreal merci beaucoup thank you so much thank you mitch now back to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Um, well, normally I say a big thank you to the, to, the, to the guests, but since you're here, Jim, thank you. Thank you for that interview. That was absolutely terrific. Me? Yes. Terrific. It was a terrific oh. interview. Me? Really? Wow. Yeah. Well, that? thank you, Mitch. I, I appreciate that. Yes. I, I, I had fun. I had fun. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I recommend that folks do like me and go out and buy... The CD. Now, I went and got the Japanese one because I'm a music geek and I'm a completist. And like an album that's missing a bonus track just drives me. Maybe it's OCD. I don't know. It drives me crazy. But uh, folks, do pick up the album or at least, at least check it out on Spotify or Apple Music or, or wherever you check out your music. But please do that. And uh, let us get over to our final guest. And, you know, this was unintentional, but I believe this has become a triple header of Canadiana because we had... Uriah Heep and Bernie Shaw mentioned in the first one. We had uh, Mike Reno and Loverboy mentioned in the second one. And now we're going to go over to Jim Valance, who, along with Brian Adams, an autre grand Canadien, another great Canadian, wrote Pretty Woman, the musical. And we talked about this, like we said, a couple of months ago. But as you know, Alan wanted to get in on it. He wanted to talk to – he wanted to sort of trade – trade secrets with Jim about how to write a great song. And so, Mr. Uh, Peterick, have you at any time shared a stage with Brian Adams or written with Jim Valance or attended one of their shows or considered writing for, for Broadway? Have, have you done any of the above or none of the above? Uh, a and C only. Okay. I, oh, I, I lost track. No, here's what it is, man. I love Jim Valance's writing. Love him. And of course, Brian Adams, yeah, uh, uh, Survivor, we toured with Brian Adams coast to coast, not Canada, but uh, I, I think the search is over was just coming out. So it had been like we got Jimmy Jameson in the band by that time. And we literally did a whole tour with, with Brian Adams and uh, got, to, you know, got to talk with him, got to sit, sit on a plane with him a number of times. Of course, after shows, have, have a drink or whatever. Uh, big fan of Brian Adams, but of course Jim Valance uh, wrote so much great stuff uh, with and for uh, Brian. And I remember I, I met Jim Valance way before uh, I, I knew of Brian Adams. I don't think Brian M Adams was born. No, he was. But anyway, it was at a studio in Chicago called Chicago Recording Company, and and Jim Valance was there uh, producing or co-producing Bachman Turner Overdrive. This was after a lot of Bachman Turner's biggest hits, and uh, and they were trying to make another album. And Barry Moraz, the famous engineer who did a lot of the sticks 
early stuff, you know, uh, all the early stuff, Paradise Theater and Come Sail Away. Barry Moraz was an engineer uh, in Chicago and a good friend of mine. He recorded my, uh, he produced my Jim Peterick Don't Fight the Feeling album on Epic in 1976. So he invited me down to meet BTO and, and there was Jim Valance and he had his acoustic guitar and he, he's, he, he's kind of a giving person. And he just started singing this incredible song that I'd never heard called Jamaica. And I'm, I'm like blown away by this song and blown away by Jim Valance. And I don't know whatever happened to that song, but we got along famously. And then I ran into him uh, again, at Little Mountain Sound, when I was mixing the first Survivor album with uh, the great late Bruce Fairburn and Bob Rock. Uh, and he, he wanders in and uh, we kind of struck it up for old times. And uh, just a dear, dear person and a fabulous songwriter. Yeah, I'm trying to find where where that song. Uh, uh, let's see, Jamaica. Yeah, I'm looking for Jamaica. It here. Jamaica here. It says that he wrote it and it ended up. Valance uh, uh, wrote Change the title. Yeah, Change to, the title or something. Yeah, he said uh, he wrote Jamaica and Rock and Roll Hell for BTO. Huh. There well, you go. I, I will I will find out who recorded it and, and where, but uh, yeah, yeah, Jim's absolutely uh, terrific. I mean, the, the stuff he's done now, he he is of course doing this. Um, uh, what do you call it? A Pretty Woman, the the musical out on Broadway, which I'm going to go see in a couple of days. But did had, he write the music with with Brian or what happened? He did it with Brian, and it, it's funny because in the first interview I said, "Hey, how was it? You know, writing for Broadway must have been terrific. You ready to do number two? And he was like, "Oh hell no!" <laughs> he said that was the worst uh, experience yeah. of my life because you write it and then the producer comes in and goes, "That song doesn't fit with this emotion, so you got to change it." And it's like, "What? That's not how we write right. songs." Have you done anything like that? Have you tried the Broadway thing or have you known friends who have done the Broadway thing and sort of have the same kind of like, oh, yeah, that was no, never again. <laughs> you know, uh, there's some people that want me to make a um, you know, story of my life in, in music and have the soundtrack, all my uh, hits going, running through it. And I said, great, I'll supply the music. You do the rest. You know, uh, I can't take four years of my life and be chained to a musical. I would love it to happen, but I know guys that have spent five, six years doing a musical and it closes it in three days, you know, <laughs> or, or it never opens. It never, or opens. it never opened. You know, I, know. I, I've I heard gonna, that story a lot. Well, I just had, um, Kip Winger from the band Winger on this week and he was talking about the yeah. musical, uh, that he's writing and it's been, well, we did this, and then we did the pre-production, and then we did the test run, and then we did that. And, and it's been like three or four years, and it's still, it's still in that, you know, we're testing it out kind of stuff. Almost like you're, you're testing, you know, the FDA tests new drug treatments or something. And you're like, really? You can't just sort of write it and throw it up there? It's got to go through all these machinations of, we had the version, the, the A version, which became the B version. And it's like, oh, okay, well, great. Get to me when you're at version X, you know? Um, but I, I know it's a, it's a mixed bag to do that really is. It is. And and it's, to me, it's sort of very, the, it's the antithesis of rock and roll. Rock and roll is very uh, guttural and very from, from, you know, it's from the gut. You just you know, rock and roll all night and party every yeah. day. And good. We got it. And, yeah. and yeah. it's not how it works, but anyway, uh, yes. Well, the only uh, two things uh, that I br brushed with the theater 
Uh, and, and this is the most pleasant experience because all I did was contribute songs. Uh, on Broadway, and, and, and premiering in, in the same week was Rock of Ages, uh, which used the searches over as their big love scene at the end of the movie and everybody's crying and, and joyously. It, it was fantastic. It was a big, big hit. The same week, Rocky the Musical opened and used Eye of the Tiger uh, like crazy in the second act. Uh, very exciting uh, if, for me. But, you know, that isn't like being a part of it like Brian and, uh, you know, and, and Valance are. They're, they're in the infrastructure. I wasn't. And it was very much fun. It was. Now, you, you just quickly on Brian Adams, you, you toured with him. Was, that must have been, what, 83 then? Like a part of his cut uh, like a knife kind of thing? Yes, exactly. Um, okay. It, 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 actually, more like 84, because early 84, because Survivor just put out Final Signs. And, um, and again, we were doing searches over. I can't hold back high on you. And one time on the, on the airplane, I was sitting next to Brian. He says, you know, that song, Search is Over. How did you guys do that? That's really good. And I said, well, thanks a lot, buddy. <laughs> you expecting less? You know? No, he said, no, I really love that song. How did you do it? And I said, well, we just did it. You know, I mean, that's a huge compliment coming from the, the king of power ballads, you know. So yeah. thank you, uh, Brian. Now, yeah, and of course, that time was just before Reckless came out. So you got you got him when he was still a, a young whippersnapper. And uh, just to quickly, this uh, recently, uh, Brian Adams and uh, Billy Idol announced a co-headline tour that'll be out at the end of July and early August. That, to me, is going to be one of the greatest pairings this summer. I mean, if you want a night of fun, Rebel Yell, Summer of 69, basically... Right, it's gonna it's gonna be three hours of of MTV Top Forty. I mean, it's uh, right. I, I will be there. I will be there. Oh yeah, tickets to that one, Mitch. Yes, I can. In <laughs> fact, uh, in fact, Steve Stevens uh, emailed me this morning to say, "Come on out." So yes, I can. Uh, I'm gonna go. Okay. I'm planning on on driving from Montreal and seeing that on August sixth in Syracuse. But I mean, what a power! Boy, for for somebody, yeah. in, at least you know, listen. I'm 50. For so, somebody my age, that's that's high school right there, and it's going to be your sweet spot. Yeah. Oh, it's going to be it's going to be delightful. Just just add well, uh, just add you on the bill, and it'll be a, a triple threat of 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 loveliness. Oh man, I, I would <laughs> uh, I would do anything to do that. But yep. yeah, I'm, I'm going to try to make that show. And, and you know, Brian, uh, what's cool about Brian is he doesn't overexpose himself, and people are hungry for Brian Adams. You know. Oh yeah, listen. I, I saw him. When was it? January, February. Anyway, I saw him earlier this year in Montreal at the Bell Center. Sold out beyond sold out. I mean, twenty one thousand people. He's coming back here in July again without Billy Idol, just part of the Brian Adams solo tour or whatever mm -hmm. Brian Adams. Tour. And then after he does that sort of Canadian run, he's going to go out and do this North or American run with Billy Idol. I mean, it, it's it's. It's just magical. Anyway, let's, it is. Okay. Let us yeah. get over Here's to Jim uh, Jim Valens. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, a brilliant songwriter, man. You know, and he kind of took a hiatus where I didn't hear much about him. Uh, was he? Did he go underground for a while? I'm wondering. Well, in a sense, yes, because uh, as we mentioned, he he got to writing on this play, the uh, Pretty Woman, uh, the musical, and for about four or five years, he was just plugging away and rewriting and writing and rewriting and tossing out and being told to toss out and 
Yeah, so he's sort of, but yeah. no, uh, in terms of Canadian or, or for our industry up here, no, he's he's been active, but but the Broadway thing has definitely kept him off the general public's radar for a little bit. Uh, and, and and listen, uh, if you get out to Broadway, you got to go. I'm going May 10th. May 10th, I will be in the theater uh, watching the, uh, the, the well, May 10th, a uh, couple of days from now, actually. I'll be there. And uh, let me, let, in fact, let us get over to Jim and hear what he has to say. So, uh, folks, here he is for the second time on uh, Rock Talk. It is the one, the only Canadian songwriter, Jim Valens. We are, of course, joined by co-host Alan Niven. And, of course, Alan, we interviewed Jim Valens a couple of weeks ago, and you said to me, man, I would love to have asked Jim some questions. Is that properly stated, Alan? I think that's accurately stated. Um, So, well, I'll tell you, here's what I'm going to do. I have got Jim waiting on the other line, and we're going to connect him, and so it let us say hello once again to the one and only Jim Valens. Good day, Jim. Hello, gentlemen. How are you? Good. I'm good. Very, very good, Jim. And it's a pleasure to connect with you and meet you for the first time. Um, if I may, I'd, I'd, I'd probably start off by saying thank you to you. Um, you obviously wouldn't realize this, but uh, there was something that you wrote that was very encouraging to me uh, from a songwriting point of view. I don't know if you're aware, but uh, um, for example, with Great White, I co-wrote all their material. And, yes, I do uh, know. There was, there was, and it was interesting to me that when asked that difficult question, you know, which song um, do you feel really good about? And he said, Summer of 69. My reaction was, absolutely, thoroughly agree. And it was in that song, you know, obviously when we're in a different state of mood, we react differently to different songs, but I've always reacted positively to that song. But the thing that was special to me about it was sitting and analyzing the fact that here was a story song that I found utterly authentic and credible. And yet, as far as I could see, it had come from your experience to another person's voice. And that I found very encouraging because I was having to do the same thing for Jack Russell. And to find that you, somebody could deliver a song in such an authentic way, and yet it spoke of somebody else's experience, was really encouraging. Well, I mean, let, let me comment on that because um, the, the song is a bit of a, of a mishmash of years and experiences. so. Even though we called the song Summer of 69, some of what's referred to, and, and the, the song is pretty much um, uh, a genuine telling of, of actual incidents and, and people and so on, mm-hmm. but um, even though it's called Summer of 69, uh, some of it takes place in the summer of 65, and, and while I'm a bit older than Brian, so I was 17 in 1969, and Brian was was only 12. So the the, um, the tendency is to think it's more my song than Brian's, but but really that would be undue credit. I mean, we did we were both in the room, we both wrote the song, and and I, I do get this question often that you know you know Brian was only 12, how could he possibly write authentically about the summer of '69? And I I like to point out that Robbie Robertson wasn't even born when he, when uh, 
the Civil War happened, and he wrote a beautiful song about um, the winter of 1865 um, and, you know, the, the night they drove old Dixie down. So I, I don't think you have to have been there to to have something to say about it. So I, I just want to make sure Brian's properly credited um, because it really is a, a combination of, you know, experiences we both had over a period of years, although we did, um, you know, centered around uh, the summer of 1969. Yeah. Well, you've written for an absolute cavalcade of people. Um, So obviously you have a very particular empathetic ability to place emotion and perspective in other voices, which which uh, I very much admire. I've got I've got to ask you. Tell me about Eat the Rich. Oh, okay. A song I wrote with um, Aerosmith. with Aerosmith. Yeah, with Joe Perry and, and Stephen Tyler. Um, I mean, we we were just kind of you know messing around in in my home studio in in, in my basement, and um, Joe had a riff, and and Stephen was. Um, I had a Korg M1 keyboard, which you know had a variety of sounds, you know, piano, organ, all kinds of different sounds. It also had a percussion setting, and Stephen was just banging on the keys quite, quite randomly, creating a, a sort of a, a Caribbean or African or just you know a percussion um, loop that he was playing. And and then Joe played a riff over that, and I, I believe I was playing bass. So I mean, it was just a jam session. And, uh, and Stephen gets credit for most of the lyrics, you know, including Eat the Rich. And um, the song just came together quite, quite quickly, really, just based on Joe's riff, Stephen's rhythm. And, and then Stephen and I fleshed out the, the lyrics later. But, yeah, that's a, that's a fun song. I enjoyed working on that one. Yeah, I, I was curious if that was um, a political and social point of view of yours, uh, because if it is, more than once, I've been inclined to incur with the concur with the sentiment, um, and uh, I, I, I looked over the lyrics uh, just before the phone call to remind myself, and uh, they made me giggle. Um, well, you know, Stephen gets credit mostly for the lyrics. I mean, depending on who I'm working with, and, and as you mentioned, I've, I've collaborated with hundreds of uh, artists over the years. Uh, I, I write lyrics. I write music. And what I tend to do is, if the other uh, collaborator is more of a lyricist than I am, then I'll, I'll, you know, take a step back and or take a step forward, depending on on what's appropriate. And in in this case, uh, Eat the Rich, the lyric is, is primarily uh, Stevens. I've, I've probably got a few lines in there here and there, yeah. just um, but it's it's really Stevens' lyric. So you don't have a, a, a six-pack of Molotov cocktails in your basement? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, certainly um, not. Although, it, the, way, the way things are going today, one... One, uh, one might be tempted. I mean, I think that... Yeah, not, not really, but uh, things, things are... Uh, that lyric is appropriate to some of what's happening today, to be sure. If I can, right. Jim, I, I'd like to ask you this, because your songs have been covered by many artists. You think of a song like Heaven or Run to You or even Summer of 69 have been reprised by all kinds of different artists as, as a primary songwriter. Do these different covers 
thrill you in a sense that, wow, look at me, I'm touching all these different genres of music and different people who want to cover it? Or do some of them annoy you and say, no, that's not what that song is. You did it. How do you sort of see cover songs of your material? Are they an affront? Are they a, a celebration? Are they a bit of both? How do you sort of see that? Well, really, all of the above. I mean, um, I, I've had, I don't know, dozens, maybe hundreds of, of covers. And I mean, for the first part, I mean, it, it's it's flattering. It's it's an honor that someone would see fit to want to cover your song. And, you know, often I, I, I find it quite inspiring because they're, they can be very, very surprising. Uh, for example, I remember, I think it was maybe early 2000s, I was driving down a, a dirt road on the way to my my cottage, and there was a song on the radio, and I wasn't really paying attention. And then I went, "Wait a minute, I I, I think I wrote that." And and what it was is um, uh, DJ Sammy's uh, disco version of um, of Heaven. I didn't even really recognize it because it wasn't quite you know my radar wasn't up. But but then suddenly I went, "Wait, that's that's my song," and I and I thought it was really innovative and different and charming and and i i really enjoyed the cover if, if you know the one i mean i think the singer's name was dominic or or, or doe uh do and the co-producer was uh, yanu so i mean that was an example of really being uh you know quite quite chuffed quite quite happy to, to hear a cover um another one um summer 69 it's been covered a number of times and it, i mean we wrote it as a rock song but uh, one day a few years ago, actually about 10 years ago, I got an email from Brian Adams who had gotten an email from Brian May of Queen. And uh, Brian had the Brian May band and one of the uh, female um, vocalists in the Brian May band was a woman named Catherine Porter. And she'd done a solo album and included um, Summer 69 as a ballad. She'd slowed it way down and done it almost in a Randy Newman style with piano and, and strings. And, and again, just a, a huge, delightful surprise, just something I couldn't have envisioned or wouldn't have imagined that that song would be appropriate. But, I mean, if you can check out her version of it, it's, it's really a, a beautiful ballad. Um, and, and Brian himself, um, when he did the MTV um, recording, Unplugged, he hired uh, Patrick Leonard to produce, and uh, he, uh, Patrick had done some work with Madonna and others. And Patrick asked Brian to play him every song he'd ever written, basically. And, it, and again, there was a song from early in my writing relationship with Brian called I'm Ready, which was a up-tempo rock song, and one that we never considered particularly good. It was just sort of a album filler. I'd almost forgotten about the song. But Patrick saw possibilities in that, and again, he took uh, a straight-out rock song, slowed it down, turned it into a ballad, added strings and an Irish um, instrument called Julian Pipes, and, and it's one of my one of my favorite recordings now of any of my songs, and completely unexpected, never would have imagined it could have been performed that way. So, you know, yeah, it, I mean, long answer to a short question, but yeah, it's it's really always interesting to hear how people reimagine your songs. Yeah, and, and, and I'll turn it over back to uh, Alan in a second, but I, I do want to take up that song, the I'm Ready, and, and the MTV Unplugged that Brian has done. 
uh, and also back to you on all. that is it, it is my favorite of the MTV Unplugged series. It, it just it it's it's poignant. I, there's no other word for it. It's just poignant. Um, and just quickly before I, I give it back to Alan here, but on on a song like Summer of '69, when you see a stadium or an audience, and Brian starts the song, and then the entire stadium sort of sings the first whatever few lines of the first. How does that hit you as a songwriter? Because it's one thing to have people sort of bop their head and stomp their feet, but it's quite another to have 40,000 people sing the lyric back to you. How does that touch you? Well, I'll, I'll be honest. I, I, I never get tired of it. Uh, I mean, I've seen Brian perform, you know, loads and loads of times in, in all kinds of venues, some of them at very large stadiums, as you've mentioned. And I'm in the audience. No one knows who I am, so I'm just sitting there. And I'm surrounded by know every word to every song. And, you know, it's just, it, it really does touch me to think that, that our music has reached all those people and, and that it's meaningful to them. So absolutely, it's, it's a, a beautiful feeling that I, that I never get tired of ever. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it's utterly encouraging because uh, um, I'm sure there are people who might, you know, obviously, when you're as successful as you are, Jim, people might be envious of the success and the go, go. What a great way to spend your life! But you know, more than once, I've I've been questioned of why did you give your life's energy to rock and roll? And I've always centered my uh, my viewpoint in the idea that we live in a coercive world. There's peer pressures, there's laws, there's family strictures, there's this, there's that. But when, Jim, you sit there and you play something to me and I recognize the emotion or the soul in it, there's a willing bridge of humanity forms between us. And I love the fact that good music suspends alienation and brings us together by our own consent. Um, you know, that, that said... Um, I don't know if you agree with this or not, but I, I learned very early on that when you write a song and you release it, you also have to be prepared to release the emotional ownership of it, that nobody is going to have exactly the same experience that might have informed its content and the reason for its existence. And they apply it to their own experience and their own lives. And thus, in a way, it becomes owned by the audience. Yeah, I, I have noticed that. And there are a few, as you well know, a few websites. You can Google a song and you'll get um, websites where people uh, debate the meaning of a lyric or so on. And it's, it's quite interesting to see how, how really differently people can, can read meaning in, into a lyric, sometimes meaning that is there, sometimes meaning that's only there for, uh, for their own purposes. But um, yeah, just the, the fact that it does reach people and resonate is, is, as you said, it's a, it's a magical thing and, and wonderful to be part of. Can allow me, if I if I may, to ask a, a couple of fanboy kind of questions. Go for it. Who, in, who inspired you? Oh, as easy. I mean, I was. A lyricist. I mean, in, in the beginning, um, when I was, you know, say, ten years old, um, music wasn't really on my radar at all. I mean, the radio was often on in the house, but but. Uh, back in the late 50s, early 60s, uh, pretty much all of the music on the radio, as I recall, were actually songs from Broadway shows. And um, 
you know, the, the occasional sort of Frank Sinatra and, you know, the artists that were on back then, they didn't really do much for me. But one night at age 11, I'm, I'm watching television and just, I was blindsided, just out of the blue, there's this band called the Beatles. And ah. from, that, from that moment, from, I mean, literally from that moment, my, my life changed forever. And, and I sort of subscribed to the, to the theory that you don't choose music music chooses you and uh, because from that from that moment on there was just no stopping me all i wanted to do was pick up a guitar or play drums or or any of that so once that um inspiration was was sort of planted then i got curious about um i mean i bought all the records and listened but it was a few years later that i started to get curious about well how do they write the songs and how do they record them and produce them and i got interested in the creative and technical side of things. So by the time I was 13 or 14, I was making my first efforts at actually, you know, writing, recording, um, uh, getting a little more into the weeds in terms of um, the, the creative and, and production process. But but right from ground zero, for me, it was the Beatles. It, it, it changed my life. I, I, I still haven't recovered, to be honest. <laughs> well, I'm delighted that you haven't recovered. Um, and I, I obviously I would heartily agree with you. And and when I'm asked, um, probably the first name I ever mention is John Lennon. Then I'll mention Bob Dylan. And then Bob Marley had had a huge impact on me too. Um, one more here. Here we go with one more fanboy question. Name me one song you wish you'd written. Oh my gosh, I, it, it, it couldn't possibly be one song, but it would be. Um, I mean, Strawberry Fields Forever by the Beatles, um, uh, A God Only Knows um, by Brian Wilson, the Beach Boys. Fabulous job. Um, yeah, and, and, and even some some older songs. I mean, I, I love early, early country. Hank Williams is a another favorite writer of mine. He's just, the lyrics and melodies are so dead simple, but but so compelling and so memorable and um I mean, I could go on and on, uh, you know, Rolling Stones, uh, The Who, I mean, just dozens of songs that I, I hear them and, and, and wish I had written them or could maybe one day write something even half as good. Um, but it, it would be somewhere in the Beatles, Beach Boys, Rolling Stones catalog for sure. May May I ask a question, I guess, to, for, for both of you? As you've gotten, uh, you know, more experienced, as the years have gone by, have you changed your songwriting approach it, it, it and i don't want to use the word formula but because you know this is a simple do you have sort of a a magic formula like this you know a goes to b and b goes to c or have you over the years changed how you approach songwriting and understand it better and go ah okay you know and i'll start with you jim have you sort of changed over the last by the way how long have you been writing songs 30, 30 years 30, 35 40 years now Oh well, I'm 66, and I started writing when I was 16. So 50 years. What's that? Wow. 50, 50 years. So <laughs> I mean, obviously, obviously. Well, okay. So from the age of like 16 to 25, there there might be an immaturity to the songwriting, but not necessarily. But you know, from from the, the those moments of summer of 69 to now, do you still write the same song, or has it? You know, what what has been the biggest change, if there is one? Well, maybe the biggest change because. Um, first of all, once you decide that you want to be a full-time songwriter, um, 
couple of reality checks uh, come into play. Um, one of them is called rent. The other one's called groceries. And um, <laughs> if, <laughs> I mean, not not to make light of it, but honestly, if if you decide to make a living as a songwriter, you have to actually find a way to to make it, you know, monetize it. So obviously, back in the day, in the in the seventies, eighties, and nineties. Um, people still went to the to the store and bought CDs and bought vinyl and bought cassettes. So there was a business model. So if you were able to, I mean, let's just use Aerosmith for an example. I, you know, spent time with Stephen and Joe, uh, but so did Desmond Child and you know Holly Knight and other writers. So there's twelve there's twelve spots open on the next Aerosmith album, and you really want one or two or three or four of those spots to be your songs because then, you know, this CD is going to sell, you're going to get paid and, and then you can afford to continue uh, being a songwriter. Um, so not that there's a formula per se, but we, we touched on this a few minutes ago where um, if you want your song to make it onto an Aerosmith album, then the song has got to sound like an Aerosmith song. And so you have to kind of, temporarily, you know, crawl into the heads of Steven Tyler and Joe Perry and, and become a temporary member of Aerosmith and think like they do and write like they do. And at the end of the day, hopefully um, your, your songs uh, make the cut and you can continue on. So, I mean, that's one sort of strategy that I employed. Um, now uh, the other one just strictly as a sort of a, uh, what I consider uh, a song secret or, or a, something that has to be addressed when you're, when you're writing a song. And this is about the only rule I really adhere to is when a song is brand new, just been written, no one's heard it. You should be able to play that song for just about anyone. And after one listen, they should be able to tell you the title of the song. So the title shouldn't be buried or obscured or, you know, somewhere off in the distance, it, it should be obvious. And, and a very, very obvious example of that would be, say, Highway to Hell by ACDC, where, you know, after about 30 seconds into the song, there's no doubt whatsoever that that song is called Highway to Hell. Um, an example that sort of breaks that rule, and, and I think maybe to the detriment of the song, uh, what was that, uh, Drops of Jupiter, by a train. Remember that song? Oh, I do. Um, yeah, and the actual, uh, the words, drops of Jupiter, if they occur in the song at all, it's only once, but the actual memorable part of the song is, lyrically is called, uh, you know, tell me, um, you know, tell me is kind of the, the lyric you're left with. And I did notice after the song became a hit, the record company re-released the CD, uh, or at least applied a sticker on the outside that says contains the hit song drops of Jupiter. And then in brackets, they put, tell me. So, I mean, the band, you know, based on, on, on my theory, I, I think sort of blundered and it was obvious to the record company and to the band that they had almost missed an opportunity for that song to be a hit because you could go into the shop and say, do you have that song? Tell me. And you know, someone might not know because it was actually titled, Drops of Jupiter. So anyway, that just to move on, but that's sort of my only rule that I, I adhere to. In terms of, has anything changed in how I write songs? 
Well, I did spend the 70s, 80s, and 90s trying very hard to um, write an Aerosmith song for Aerosmith or an Aussie song for Aussie and, and, you know, stayed within those parameters. But the idea being you write the right song, it ends up on the record, the record sells, and you can afford groceries. After Napster, after 1999, when people stopped buying CDs and music was from that point forward virtually free, there, there, there was no, there were no record sales to chase, and I actually, while that's you know devastatingly negative as a business model, it actually freed me creatively because I, I thought, well, no one's going to buy it anyway, so why don't we just write whatever we, we want? I mean, we don't have to chase album sales anymore, and 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 it was a kind of a cathartic. Uh, Epiphany, in in a way, it it did free me creatively. I still stuck to the, to my rule of song title, but it it did affect the way I wrote songs. I wasn't thinking about groceries. I was thinking completely, totally, freely about the music. So again, very long an- answer to a very short question. I apologize. Uh, <laughs> no, don't apologize, Jim. That's uh, something I have a um, an, an empathy with. Um, Back in the day when uh, forming material for Great White, um, I found that I'd, the system that Michael Ardy and I used for uh, putting together albums uh, was such that we would work on a riff. Uh, we would work on you know, a chord progression that Michael might come up. And we'd actually formulate that into a sonic bed and then I'd have to go away with it and try and match a sense of content that fit the atmos of the sonic bed. And I've got to tell you guys, it was incredibly tiresome sometimes. I would be just playing the same little piece of tape over and over and over again, waiting for some sense of divinity to come and touch me and go, here you go, try this. Um, so there was a point where... I had an epiphany, to to borrow your word, um, and changed the approach to writing where I sat down one day and I went, you know what, let's make the content and the lyrical statement first. We know how to write a song. We know how, how, how to arrange it and formulate it. You've done it so many times. So let's just start with the content. And, uh, and it was really interesting because that was concise the content informed the atmosphere, and then you'd find that you know if you were disciplined in your um, syllables per line and, and the rhythm that that got, and if you worked hard to um, find words that were not necessarily predictable and cliche, that those words within themselves would, ha- would have inherent note value and melody, and that for me was opening a real big door opening for me. Um, and the, the, the other rule I had, Jim, was if you think you've got a song, sit down with whoever you like to work with on the carpet, each of, you, each of you with an acoustic guitar, and sing it. And if it works at that level, it'll work at the band level. I call that the campfire test. Yes. That if you can, yeah, if you can make it sound like a song with just acoustic guitar and vocal, you, you've done your job. Yes, 
Absolutely, I thoroughly agree there. Oh, and I thoroughly agree too. And I'm using, and I'm I'm from the fan perspective. I I hear bands like Brian, like Bon Jovi, like Aerosmith, who do unplugged or do, you know, B sides of you know the acoustic version of, and those songs still work. And that's where you go, yeah, okay. That's because a good song is a good song is a good song. Uh, let me quickly remind folks, of course, that uh, Pretty Woman the Musical is on Broadway now. And oh, you it, just stepped into my brain. I, I was going to quickly ask, if I may. Yes. Um, Jim, how has your experience been working in Broadway? Have you found that pleasurable or um, a heavy weight to lift or excessively demanding? Is it something that you've had pleasure with? I mean, all of the above. Um, um, it's funny, it's a, a story that occurred to me, I perhaps shouldn't share this, but um, I found some letters in, in my grandmother's attic when I was uh, going through her house a number of years ago. And they were letters her brother had written from France in 1918 during the First World War. Uh, wow. He had been... He had been, uh, he hadn't enlisted. He had, he had been um, drafted and sent over to France. And there was a lot of enthusiasm for that war. A lot of young men just couldn't wait to get over there and set things right. Um, it was like a, an extended Boy Scout uh, expedition until they got there and realized what the hell they'd signed up for. Right. And um, my great uncle Jim's younger brother, Herb, was not quite old enough to enlist, but he was waiting for his 18th birthday so he could enlist and go over to France. And the older brother, Jim, although you weren't allowed to say much in your letters because they were censored, uh, but he wrote to Herb and said, whatever you do, don't enlist. Don't, don't come over here. And uh, <laughs> my, my advice would, would almost be, whatever you do, don't take on a Broadway <laughs> musical. <laughs> Now, now having said that, yes, there was some e extreme heavy lifting and some very difficult moments, but there were also some absolutely exhilarating moments and, and the learning curve was steep and, and there was lots to learn. And, and I, I think it's quite, quite wonderful to be 66 and still be learning something new every day. I think that's uh a very important part of, of life just to keep challenging yourself and keep learning, which is why I took this on. And, and I'm, I'm so glad it's finished. I'm so glad it's enjoying success on Broadway. Uh, I don't think I'd do another one. It, it was way more work, way more brain damage than, than I could have envisioned. But, but again, um, you know, we wrote 40 songs to get 20. Um, audiences seem to, to love the, the show, love the songs. So I, I think we, I think we did what was expected of us, and and I'm and I'm proud of that body of work. But um, it, it's it's a huge amount of work to to uh, get a musical well, on Broadway, and and I, I understand it's but, very successful. So you know, Jim, that they're going to come knocking on the door again. I haven't yet, um, but um, honestly, unless it's like childbirth, where they they say that. <laughs> <laughs> women have babies and it's it's a horrible experience but then they forget it and have more babies I, unless it's like that but as of this moment and we've been on broadway since july so it's been you know six months and a bit and at this moment i still think i would 
would possibly decline, I think. Um, and apparently our three-year song wedding cycle was actually um, uh, amongst the shorter uh, <clears throat> possibilities. Uh, so I can't imagine uh, five years. And yeah, I mean, the difficult part about it, just, just to sort of maybe flesh out my my comments, is um, a, a very talented carpenter friend of me friend of mine once told me he said if you ask me to build something i can do a really good job the first time if you ask me to rip it out and build it again i can do a pretty good job the second time but if you ask me to rip it out and build it again the third time he said i start to lose my enthusiasm and that's kind of what happened with the the broadway show is um our director was very very particular about each song um, serving the, the story and being perfect for the scene. And we would write a song and it would stay in for maybe a couple of months during a, a cycle of rehearsals and casting and and so on and what they call workshops where you act the play, but it's just, uh, just in front of music stands or uh, seated at a table called table readings. And then after a couple of months, the director would come and say, you know, that song is, it's it's good, but it's not quite right. Can you write another one? And so we'd write another song and it would last for a few months and then the director would come to us again and, and want a, a third song. And um, to his credit, I'm going to, I'm going to say that every time he asked us to write another song, we always wrote a, a better one. And the director was a hundred percent correct. He, he, his instincts were, were right on the money, but that didn't make the, the process any, any less um, demanding or challenging. And, there, there were a few times I just really had trouble getting getting my enthusiasm to, to a point where I, know, I, might suggest, I might suggest, Jim, that actually the credit goes to you and Brian for writing something better or when you've been pushed. Um, and that's to your credit rather than the director's credit. And the thought that crossed my mind is at times when I found myself second-guessing, something i've always gone to bobby dylan's comment of the first idea is usually the best one yeah and of course uh it is at the nederlander uh, theater that pretty woman is uh, currently residing i guess that's the word for it i will be there in may to see it i cannot wait um I have to say, Broadway is very interesting. I see, I've seen Sebastian Bach do some stuff there. I saw Aladdin there not too long ago, and I'm really excited about seeing Pretty Woman because it really is uh, an event. And to see that uh, Jim and, of course, Brian had a hand in it, it's going to make it that extra special thing. Uh, gentlemen, thank you for this afternoon. Absolute, absolute pleasure, Jim. Thank you for for putting up with not my, my with with my nonsense not once but twice. That shows you're a man of character. And uh, Alan, toujours un plaisir. Always a pleasure to have you on board. Well, thank you very much. And Jim, thank you very much for taking the time. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk with you. My pleasure, too. Thank you both. Thank you, boys. Thank, thank you, guys. And uh, there you go. Let me just put an end to this. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFond. Mitch LaFond.